The Jewish views on the Barcelona terrorist attack. What's to become of Spanish Jews now the Catalonian chief rabbi says his community is doomed. Where in the Dark, the gripping new book by Karen Millie James, which is based on her own family's experience of World War II. And what happens when a nice Jewish boy takes over the NHS Twitter account. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Iran's atomic energy organization has said the country could begin enriching weapons-grade uranium within days. That's if the nuclear deal made with six world powers that Iran signed in 2015 is cancelled. Donald Trump has threatened to renegotiate or cancel it amidst claims Iran has violated the spirit of the agreement by, amongst other things, testing missiles. An Iranian spokesman, Ali Akbar Salehi, has said his country remains committed to the deal. A solicitor from Bedfordshire who said it was a shame that a plane carrying Jewish refugees didn't blow up midair has been fined £25,000 and ordered to pay £10,000 in costs. Majid Mahmoud, who is a partner at City Law Chambers in Luton, had the sanction imposed by the Solicitor's Disciplinary Tribunal for the comments he made on social media in 2015 and 2016. And some Jewish representatives have welcomed new guidance from the Crown Prosecution Service regarding tackling online hate crime. The CPS has announced that it would be treated as seriously as if it had happened face to face. Its director, Alison Saunders, said an increasing proportion of hate crime is now perpetrated online, but admitted there are no straightforward answers to combating it. Stephen Silverman from the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism said the CPS lacked the willpower to do anything about attacks against Jews and mentioned the decreasing prosecution rates. The comedian and filmmaker Jerry Lewis, best known for his starring role in The Nutty Professor, has died at his home in Las Vegas. He was 91. Lewis had a famously successful partnership with the actor and singer Dean Martin, though their relationship was acrimonious at times. Jerry Lewis was born Joseph Levitch in New Jersey to parents who appeared in small-time vaudeville. He began performing with Martin in 1946, and they starred in 13 films together, with Lewis as the slapstick sidekick to Martin's more relaxed persona. And finally, a 42-year-old Jewish former teacher is among this year's Great British Bake Off contestants as it moves to Channel 4 from the BBC. Stacey Hart lives with husband James and their three young sons in Hertfordshire and says she likes to incorporate her Jewish heritage into her baking, making her own challah every Friday night. That's the news this week. Over to Mark for the sport. Thank you, Vivian. Hapoel Beersheva suffered more Champions League heartache on Tuesday evening after they failed to qualify for the group stages of the competition for a second consecutive season. The Israeli champions suffered a 1-0 second leg loss against Slovenian side Maribor, meaning they went out on the away goals rule. Their consolation, though, is a place in the Europa League. Maccabi Tel Aviv are set to join them in that competition, and this week announced former England manager Steve McLaren was joining them as a coaching consultant. The 56-year-old said, I have huge respect for such a well-known club, both in Israel and in Europe, and I intend to help the players achieve success for the fans this season. And finally, the fourth and final Grand Slam of the year gets underway on Monday. Israeli interest at the US Open in Flushing Meadows is set to be with Dudi Seller and Jonathan Ehrlich while other Jewish players taking part include Italian Camilla Giorgio and Argentine Diego Schwartzman. 
Follow all the players at the tennis and keep up to date with the latest Jewish sporting stories at jewishnews.co.uk. Mark, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. On the front page this week, a story of, well, two sides, really. We've got a nice story and a not-so-nice story. So let's start off with the not-so-nice story, shall we? Lawyer called for bombing of Jews on plane, is the headline, but he can still practice law. Bit disturbing. What's this about? Yeah, the the nice story on the front that you referred to is about the great British bake-off. Which which, we'll get uh, on to in a minute. I'm sure Fran, (laughs) uh, Fran will discuss in just a little while's time. Next to it is a half-baked lawyer who has decided that Jews on a plane should be blown up. This was a couple of years ago. He was tweeting it on social media. This week he was fined the not inconsiderable fee of £35,000. But what really sticks in the jaw is the fact that he's still going to be able to practice law. Obviously, we want our lawyers to be fair-minded, level-headed, rational. I suggest this man is anything but... Yes, it's probably not the kind of thing for three Jews to sit around a table and discuss because, let's be honest, it's very hard to be impartial with something like this. So let us turn our attention to the other story on the front page, which, of course, is a nicer story. It's about the Great British Bake Off, and there's a Jewish contestant in the ranks. Yes, her name is Stacey Hart. She's 42. She's from Radlett. She's a mum of three. She decided... She's always had a passion for baking, but during her university years, she took it a little bit more seriously. And now she'll be showing off her tarts and buns and souffles and hopefully not too many soggy bottoms. Can I just set the scene here? Because on Wednesday, we go to press on a Wednesday. So when something massive happens, like a Jew on Bake Off, it's pretty (laughs) profound stuff at the Jewish News. So we go into what's known as lockdown. Is this Um, why it's on the front page? Yes, yes. We go into something called lockdown, which is basically we set up an operation room. We all go into our bunker and we all come up with three or four ideas as to how we can generate content for this big idea. So it's been the biggest news story, certainly of the last 25 minutes or so for us here at the Jewish News. And uh, she's on page one and hats off to Fran. I didn't think she'd get very much within the few hours she had before press. She managed to get the only interview, as far as I can tell now, before the show starts on Tuesday evening on Channel 4. And not to mention also that I would be lying if I didn't tell you that on the Jewish Views we also tried to get her as well, to which with absolute no success. So Fran, you obviously have that magic touch. You've got something that the rest of us haven't, so well done. But there you go. Stacey's got bake expectations. Who's responsible for that headline? I couldn't possibly say. Who do you think? I don't need to ask that really, do I? Let's have a look inside the paper and some of the other stories that are making it for this week. 87% say Corbyn's Labour tolerant of anti-Semitism. We're just hoping that this story will eventually fizzle out, go away and hopefully improve. But it seems, oh dear, it might even be getting worse. Yeah, well, I don't think it's getting worse. I think the Campaign for Anti-Semitism that have authored this report, I think they're not concerned particularly that the hate numbers are going up, although, of course, they are. It's more the lack of prosecutions, the, the lack of the Crown Prosecution Service and the police actually executing their powers and making sure that people who are guilty are actually punished. So there's quite a multifaceted survey that they've published in the last couple of days. One of it tackles yet yeah, the lack of punishment of anti-Semitic attacks. And the other one is breaking down 
the amount of tolerance in the main parties to anti-Semitism. And of course, it goes without saying, that they say that Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party is most tolerant, least likely to stamp it out. Uh, 87% believe that is the fact, which is obviously quite a staggering figure for a, a mainstream party. It's just unbelievable. You're talking about there is pretty much nearly always a choice of two, no matter whichever way the media try and portray it. We all know that when it comes to British politics, there's nearly always the choice of two. It's pretty much going to be either the Conservatives or the Labour Party that are in power in this country at any one time. And the fact that the opposition has this kind of statistic behind them should be surely very concerning for British Jews. I mean, for me, it's the stink that just won't go away, isn't it? There are concerns. I imagine Jeremy Corbyn thinks a bit like that as yeah, well. Yeah, but... there, are, there are obviously concerns about the Labour Party and its inability to actually address this issue properly and seriously and to overcome the Jewish population's fears of anti-Semitism within the party and its tolerance of anti-Semitic issues. And yet it goes on and on and on. And it feels like, yes, when it does come down to the feelings of British Jews in this country, who would we rather choose, the Tories or Labour? And it's simply because they're not addressing this issue. Yeah. For our community, I think there is something rotten in in the Labour Party because Jeremy Corbyn is at its centre. And Jeremy Corbyn, his constituency includes the far left. The far left are the ones that thrust him into the limelight and thrust him into leadership. Now, if he disavows the far left, who hate Israel and certain elements of it, you could argue, are anti-Semitic as well, then he disavows the people that flung him into power in much the same way that you didn't get Trump disavowing the, the neo-Nazis in, in Charlottesville a week or so ago. They, there is well, a he constituent... sort of did and then he might have backtracked a bit well, on it. Well, that's putting it... That's a bit bit too fair, I think, on, on Trump on that one. I think he... he, he well, himself... no, but to be fair to Corbyn as well, it's not as if he hasn't been making the right noises in the past. It's just unfortunately it would appear at surface value if he can't get a grip on things. And that's what's the most disturbing. Yeah, he won't cut loose that side of the party, which is now swelling in its ranks and becoming the prime mover in the Labour Party. And nothing is really going to change until Corbyn moves aside and a more moderate voices can be heard loudly. Interesting, I'm sure. Well, who knows what happens with the Labour Party, but it's, I think, a very interesting time for politics. Full stop, let's be honest. Let's have a look at some of the other stories. If we look at page seven, and we have ourselves a yellow star faux pas. Italian fashion label Moo Moo. Am I pronouncing that right? Mew Mew. Mew Mew. Mew Mew. It's pulled items of clothing from its range because some genius out there decided to put a yellow star onto a dress obviously the yellow star having all kinds of connotations and none of them good and they have apologized they have pulled it from its range but we've seen this before i'm beginning to wonder now i'm a bit of a cynic are these fashion labels purposely putting these yellow stars on their clothing to try and provoke a reaction to get media coverage what what is this because surely they must know before putting a yellow star on a design the kind of reaction they're going to get Okay, well, let's look at this from a fair side, shall we? Let's have a look at the Mew Mew side of things and say that first and foremost, it's important to highlight that it's a five-pointed star, it's not a six-pointed star. So that's the first step. Now, whether or not that they, out of their way, went to make a point of putting a star on their clothing because they thought they were going to get press coverage, who knows? Not very fair to assume that because there's no one from Mew Mew to answer for themselves. But what is quite shocking, the fact that they are a subsidiary, I believe, of the House of Prada, which is obviously an incredibly well-known brand, 
all around the world, it's known, and you would think that they have better advisors that would say, actually, do you know what, this might be in pretty poor taste. It is shocking, but hopefully have they gone some way to rectify it now? These stories do have a tendency to crop up every now and then. We've had stripy pyjamas that look a bit like concentration camp garb. We had the swastika behind the rainbow couple of weeks ago. I happen to think that this is actually a bit of something out of nothing. It's, as you said, it's not the Star of David. It's a different shaped star. They've obviously decided that this is a bad PR move for them and they've withdrawn it. What we have also opposite, I like it when you get a bit of symmetry in news, is is this week the, the legendary Billy Joel, a man who I've seen in concert many, many times. Uh, but I've never seen him in concert with the actual Jude yellow star patch that the Nazis forced the Jews to wear. He wore it to the Madison Square Garden concert he had this week. We don't really know why. The sense on social media is he did it as an attack on Donald Trump and the aforementioned controversial stance he took on Charlottesville. But on this week's page seven, we have the the star from the fashion label and the, the yellow star of the pop icon. Well, I think the point to make here is that Billy Joel obviously felt by wearing a yellow star, he was making a point, he was making a statement. That's how much weight a yellow star still carries today, more than 70 years after the Holocaust. And I think putting it, if you're a fashion designer and you're going to put a yellow star on your dress or on your clothing, you should think about the connotations. You should think about perhaps that for some people that that symbol still holds you know, very strong feelings. But you've just made the point there. You've hit the nail on the head. It's for some people. And we do have to be fair that it is possible that someone within the House of Prada and obviously subsequently Mew Mew did not realise this and did not realise what it could mean to a lot of Jews worldwide. Look, at least they've rectified it. We have to give them credit where it's due. They have done something about it. And hopefully, I dare say that it's not going to be the end of these fashion stories that we hear. But hopefully with everyone that does come about, people will learn from them. It's a good story for this week. But I mean, we rush rush to take offence sometimes. It's a five-point star. It's not a six-point star. It's a different kind of star. You're saying you can't ever have stars that are yellow ever again. I don't think yellow stars that have a a black border that look like they're patchwork and actually sewn on. Yes, I think that's actually taking... It's not a yellow star. It's, you have a look at the picture and decide for yourself. I accept mm. your right to take offence, but I, and I like to take offence. On this occasion, I, I can't. Well, I think before tensions run too high, that's where we'll have to leave it for the paper review for this week. Thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News and, of course, obviously see that image for yourself on page seven every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Last Thursday and Friday, Spain became the latest European country to experience the horrors of a terror attack. 14 victims and five suspected terrorists were killed in Barcelona and the resort town of Cambrils. So what does the future hold for Spanish Jews? Let's find out now as we speak to Victor Sorensen, a spokesperson for the Jewish community of Barcelona. Victor, thank you for speaking to us. First and foremost, how are the people of Barcelona, not necessarily just the Jewish community? Okay, let's say that the whole Catalan society, maybe not just the the Barcelona one, was very, very shocked by this attack. Although that we've seen this scenario in in different cities and capitals of Europe, it's always very shocking to see and to watch it in, in the streets that you are used to, to walk, or to visit, and and I think that this attack um, like shake 
the society in many ways, no? first of all, in a, in a reflection of what are the, the role of, of politicians uh, regarding security, but also what's the policy towards integration in society, why all this happened. I think, and I, I can affirm that the society is responding to, to these attacks in a very powerful way. There's many concentrations, uh, rallies, uh, protests, uh, with a lot of participation of all the society, different NGOs, public institutions, foundations are working together in order to make a, a, and project an image of, of unity. So I think we are living a very uh, interesting moment uh, here now also because uh, in in, in Barcelona, we've been living a very delicate political moment in the last months because yeah. all what's uh, going on with the, with the referendum. So this actually changed the agenda completely. Well, what's really interesting, and certainly from the images that we've seen here in the UK of the way the Catalonian community have dealt with this, is it was very much a case of keep calm, carry on, shops and restaurants just opening up almost as normal the next day after it happened, which seemed incredibly impressive and very different to how we handled, say, the terror attacks that we recently had here in London. But maybe just give us a bit of an insight, Victor, into what Jewish life in Catalonia and Barcelona is actually like, because we don't necessarily know that much about the Jewish community of Barcelona. So tell us a bit about, if not before this attack, just what life was like in general. Barcelona Jewish community, it's the first, actually it's the first community that was uh, founded in all Spain after the expulsion of the Jews in 1492. It was established in 1918. The Barcelona Jewish community had a very, has a very interesting history. It started with basically with Jews that came from Sephardic countries during the First World War, then increased the number due to the immigration that came uh, during the Spanish Civil War and the Second World War, Jews trying to, to leave their countries or trying to leave behind the anti-Semitism and the race of the Nazism. But after that, the dictatorship of, of Franco started. So the Jewish community was li- living a very hard time because the regime was very conservative. It was uh, very Catholic. And it wasn't until 1977 that the Jewish community got a status of like other religious institutions and now living in, in democracy. And since that, I think that we are living a, a very interesting revival. Actually, nowadays, for synagogues, there's a very important Jewish film festival. There's a Jewish literature festival also in Barcelona. We see from the Jewish community that there's a lot of interest also from the non-Jews in this Jewish history and this incredible legacy that came from the Middle Ages. But Victor, it can't be all that wonderful if the chief rabbi of Barcelona himself is saying, Rabbi Meir Bahen, says that he's been encouraging the community to leave Spain for years because he thinks that his community is doomed. I know, I know. And first of all, I think that we need to mention also that the the rabbi made other declarations after that, saying that actually he don't think that the situation is uh, that risky. 
he was saying apologies for his words. My point of view is that this statement that it's pretty dramatic, it's not representative of the Catalan Jewish community. His point of view is regarding not what's going on in Spain. His view is regarding what's going on in all Europe. And I think that it's not a, a new statement. We, we see and we heard from uh, not, not only from Spain, also from France, these kinds of calls of inviting the congregants and the members of the community to live to, to Israel. But I think that in a way, this is offering a succeed to these terrorist movements, no? And they are succeeding if they change our way of life, if they change our way to live our Judaism in Europe. Well, I tell you what, there was a really lovely image that was portrayed on the news over here in the UK in light of what happened in the terror attack. And it was an image of a religious Jewish man and a religious Muslim man who actually were consoling each other because they were obviously clearly upset with what had happened to the city that they know and that they love. And they were comforting each other through this really rough time. What are relations normally like between the Jewish community and the Muslim community of Barcelona? The relationships are, are pretty good and are fluent relationships. The Jewish community is participating in an inter-religious, interfaith dialogue with the highest representatives of the Muslim community of, of Spain. We participate in, in several acts together. We are trying to, to build these relationships. I think that's the answer and that's the correct approach to face what we are living nowadays. We need to like make these bounds uh, stronger. We've been working in our relationship, not just with the Muslim community, also with Catholic community from years and years. And I think that now this kind of relationships and this kind of approach, it's a key, it's a key moment to show that we are united against these uh, radicalization terrorist movements. Well, there is a slightly worrying side to this, that the attack happened just outside the Maccabi restaurant of Barcelona, which is actually, correct me if I'm wrong, is it the only kosher restaurant in Barcelona? Or is it, if it's not the only, it's certainly one of the few kosher restaurants. No, actually, it's the only one. It is the only one, I thought so. OK, so bearing in mind that it was outside the only one, is there any truth in that this could have been an attack aimed at harming in particular the Jewish community? Well, from what we know, and we have very fluent communication with the security forces of our country, it seems that the Maccabi restaurant wasn't a target of this terrorist attack. It happens that the Maccabi restaurant is in La Ramblas next to a, for it's, it's pretty, pretty funny, it's just next to an Arabic restaurant called Habibi. Actually, they have a very interesting relationship between them. But I think that from what I know and from what they told us, the kosher restaurant wasn't the, the target in this case. Just finally, what's next for Barcelona? Do things go back to normal? Will life ever be the same again? I hope so. I hope so. And I think it's our responsibility to, to work towards that. As you said, the next day after the attack, Everything was open, the Ramblas uh, was uh, full of people. I had the opportunity 
to visit the place and it was alive and actually we are so proud of that to not be afraid this is the motto of the of the pro, well of the rally that it's going to happen in a couple of days we are not afraid and i think that that should be our our statement and we need to work towards that with the rest of the society with the rest of the social fabric of our city for me it's very very important Victor Sorensen, spokesperson for the Jewish community of Barcelona, thank you so much for speaking to me. And naturally, of course, we wish you, the Jewish community and all communities of Spain, nothing but peace from now on. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive, Tony and I will be joined by lawyer Denise Lester and we'll all be discussing tattoos. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Jeremy Crane, a surgeon who was given the task of taking over the NHS's official Twitter account for a whole week. But first, there are many books that have been written about the Holocaust, whether they be fact or fiction. But the new book by Karen Millie James is technically both. Where in the Dark is inspired by Karen's own family history, and it explores the dark secrets of stolen Nazi gold and the hunt for justice and redemption. Arts editor Kate Fulton has been speaking to Karen to find out more about it. And Kate started by asking Karen to tell us where the idea behind the book came from. It's a sequel to a book that was published last year called The Shadows Behind Her Smile, which is about a corporate forensics expert called Sydney Granger. And it's about her family and her life. And Where in the Dark opens with two Holocaust survivors receiving in the post a bearer bond each for $1 million, and they don't actually know where it's come from. It's come out of the blue. And Sydney is asked to investigate where it's come from, and it leads her to pursue an escaped Nazi who's now in America, came over after the war, and his son is running for US president. Go for extremes, I say. So it's all about revenge. It's about crime, punishment. I wanted to explore the psychopathy of the Nazis. Why did they do it? Really, for my own peace of mind. What led you to need this peace of mind? The first book is nothing about the Holocaust or the Nazis. It's really about Sydney's progression and her family and a couple of cases that she's working on. But it's something very close to my heart because my dad was from Germany and he came out with the kinder transport in 1939. And something we never talked about, I didn't even know he was German until he passed away in 1967. Gosh, he'd kept that from you. Yeah, I mean, I don't recall his voice, but you know, he told us he was Swedish. And he came out with the kinder transport via Stockholm and then onto the UK. And he was 12 at the time. So he lost everybody. And I wanted to, to do some justice to this. I needed to find out why did they do this? Are you Sydney in this book? Sorry, but I'm hearing the (laughs) detective work in your own Well, yes. I mean, I I am in business myself. I am in the corporate world and been in business for many, many years. And I think probably there is a Sydney in me, yes. You write about what you know or you know about what you write, whichever way you want to think about it. And I think Sydney is a great character and she's very motivated. Her husband has passed away, allegedly. He's missing in action. He was in the Special Forces. So there's a lot for men and women 
in the book. It's not just a woman's it's not book. A, no, it's not, and I, it's not a chick lit because I don't like them myself. I was always going to write a thriller because I love thrillers. So that to me was important. And I liked the idea of having a female protagonist because I think it's missing at the moment. There's not many, is there? Can you see this morphing into a film? There are talks. <gasps> I cannot Very say. Very exciting. You heard it first here on The Jewish Views. <laughs> you have. We are in talks. We've got a potential couple of quite famous actors or actresses yeah. for the main part. And I've always had somebody in mind, but I cannot say at the moment. But it's really the whole... Nazi thing. What have these two Holocaust survivors got over the Nazi and vice versa? And in fact, I interviewed two wonderful survivors, Ziggy Shipper, you might have heard of, and Ivor Pearl. And they go around talking about it and they agreed to speak to me, which was great. great. Charming, wonderful men. And the stories they told were just amazing yes and in the build-up in the research you said you mm. interviewed people did mm. you did you try and look back into your into what your father had done into the family history yeah I mean we've got all my dad's papers from when he came over to the UK as a child he was sent to a boarding school in Surrey which is no longer there and then when he was old he was sent up to Birmingham but allegedly or in front of the papers he wasn't treated very well letters we've got copies of all his letters for some reason every letter he wrote he kept a carbon copy so it's all in German which unfortunately I can't speak but only pick up a few little things but we've got everything there all the research and then he was conscripted and he actually got promoted and went into the intelligence corps and he went over into Europe and helped catch some of the Nazis wow so it really is art imitating life isn't it your book yeah, it sounds I mean, I like just, it's all yes and the things I found out when I was actually doing all my research, I mean, when you're writing a book, research to me is very important. And I wanted to get the facts straight because I didn't want anyone to come back to me afterwards and say, well, actually, that's not true. So the book to some people may be quite difficult to read. I think as a Jewish person, a Jewish woman, we would understand what we went through. And we're quite, it's a horrible thing to say, but we're quite used to hearing these things. So I wanted to understand it. I wanted to know what happened in Germany, where people were taken, why they were taken. But the main thing is why the Nazis took all the gold, what they did with it. Switzerland wasn't as clean and no. neutral as everyone made out. And I wanted to find out how the gold worked through Switzerland and in fact ended up in the Federal Reserve in New York. And the book is about this Nazi who's used the gold to fund a bank which has been in the family in not the family he married into for many many years and it's all about the interaction between all the characters really and can he ever feel remorse now when I wrote about him I wanted to get into his psyche and I didn't really expect to be so blown away by what I discovered when I was writing about him and was he ever going to feel remorse do psychopaths ever feel remorse and I got him going along to confession with a priest. And it's all their interaction as well. To try and get down into, is he ever going to be sorry for what he did? If he even recognises it as a, as a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, presumably and that's part of the social psychopath, is they don't even recognise it. No, as, they don't. They don't feel the empathy that normal people... No, they don't. There's no empathy. And I think what I drew from that is the fact that, yes, he was going to feel remorse because he was afraid of dying afraid what awaited him and how 
the pain he was going to go divine through. reckoning he thought yes. that was yeah so he thought if he actually confessed and said how sorry he was but was he sorry no going back to gold mm. and money did you understand how that all worked because of your business? And, yes. And, um, and tell me a little bit about your business, what you do elsewhere in your life. <laughs> okay. I set up my international consultancy 24 years ago, and I'm based in Boreham Wood. And I also have an accountancy practice. So I think being able to research and understanding how the bank business worked, the background of it helped me because a lot of it I did understand already. And it was more into the historical side that I needed to find out more about it. But the, certainly being in business, I think, really helped. And I could understand the way that Sydney acted as she does, because probably that's the way I would do it. So you're mm. working and then suddenly you decide, actually, I need to get this all out. I've got so many things going. I want to write this book. Or was it, were these characters popping up? for quite a period of time? No, not at all. In fact, it came as a surprise to me, can you believe? I was 12 when my dad died, and I've got two younger brothers and a sister, and they were all very young. And I started out writing memoirs of what I remembered from him and my mum, and I wanted to, for them to understand, because it was a long time ago, but I was just coming into my teens, leading up to my 13th birthday. So I started writing, and I ran out of things to say. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if I turned the story, because, I mean, who wants to read about me, really, you know, autobiography? If I turned the story into a novel, then I could go where I wanted with my character. And it was really how she evolved. And you're launching the book... When? Well, the 4th of September, it's out on hardback and paperback. It's in all the good bookshops, hopefully. WH Smith, I'm doing a signing at WH Smith Watford on 2nd and 3rd September, if anyone wants to come along. It's on Kindle with Amazon. It's also on Audible. Both books are on Audible. Author Karen Millie James talking to arts editor Kate Fulton there about her new book, Where in the Dark. To find out more, then go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment, we'll be this week's schmooze. Don't forget to tune in to our live stream every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime on our Facebook page. It's one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, you can also email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, in recent years, you'd be forgiven for thinking that for many, the world revolves around social media. I know that it's completely changed the world of radio, for starters. Well, think about the level of responsibility for the person at the helm of some of the biggest Twitter accounts out there, especially for big-named brands. That's exactly what Jeremy Crane, a surgeon based at Hammersmith Hospital, wound up doing when he took over the NHS's official Twitter account for a week. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Jeremy to find out more. And Diana started by asking him how he came to be in charge of at NHS. Well, I was approached many months ago to take over this Twitter handle. And at the time, I thought that's a good idea. And then my slot came up this week. So I didn't really prepare for it as such. But I saw the guy before me last week who was getting a huge amount of engagement and exposure. And I thought, oh no, I better do a really good job here. But I'm lucky because the field of transplant surgery is such an interesting topic. And it's timely because people are talking about 
the organ donor register and all the different nuances that actually so many people have, have been involved and have been tweeting and replying and retweeting that I think it's been a really worthwhile week so far. I also feel that quite a few people have said, on the basis of the conversation, I've now joined the organ donor register, which to me is tremendously worthwhile and worth all the efforts. Although on saying that, it's been a lot of fun as well. You found, obviously, that it's quite powerful, Twitter, isn't it? I, I, can, I know you've got your own Twitter account, but this must be quite a, a much, much larger enterprise. You're absolutely right. I was astounded. I mean, I spoke to the Associate Medical Director of NHSBT, which is National Health Service Blood and Transplant, and I said, are there any particularly nuanced areas of transplantation that you'd like to get an opinion on? And he mentioned about when someone suddenly passes away and they're they're available to give away their organs and they're on the organ donor register, can their relatives overrule their decision? So I put out a Twitter poll, not really thinking I'd get much in the way of response. For, for example, if I did it on my Twitter and I got 30 responses, I'd be delighted. So I put out a poll about whether relatives could overrule their loved one's decision and I got over 4,000 responses in 24 hours and I was astounded and it it really hit me how powerful this Twitter handle is. And so it can be really used as a force for good. And so, for example, earlier this week, I interviewed, just just for 60 seconds or so, a man who just had, a couple of weeks before, a simultaneous pancreas and kidney transplant. Now, whilst a lot of people understand the purpose of a kidney transplant, not many people understand that you can actually have a pancreas transplant. And very few surgeons around the country do it, and there's very few centres that perform this operation. But this man, a delightful man, had had his transplant, he was doing really well, and he talked about it, and that got huge amounts of engagement, and people saying, actually, I didn't even know that you could transplant a pancreas. And so getting those messages across, to me, is really important. All this talk of surgeons makes me wonder how on earth you managed to get any time devoted to your actual work as a surgeon, as you're obviously extremely an expert in Twittering. Okay, (laughs) well, that's that's interesting. Twitter's more like, you know, when you've got five minutes here and there. This week, obviously, I've taken it more seriously. It just so happens I haven't done a huge amount of operating this week, and I'm not on call, so I've had a little bit more time. But I do feel that... With the exposure and the amount of people that are really engaging with this Twitter account this week, I think this job is really important because bringing people on board and particularly allowing people to think about joining the organ donor register is so important and so significant. I mean, there are many, many people waiting for a transplant in this country. There are thousands and people do die because they can't get that organ in a timely fashion. If we get so many more people on the organ donor register then actually we can try and reverse this this trend and it's make a huge improvement for all those patients within the transplant community waiting for an organ to come along. And I gather it's not difficult to get on the register, is it? I mean, it's well publicised. To get on the organ donor register is very straightforward. It's a question of going onto the website, just putting it into Google. You fill in a few details and essentially that's it. Very, very straightforward. So... I urge everyone that's listening to this, if you haven't signed up, then please do so. 
Hmm, maybe before he hands over the reins to someone, he could maybe give us a retweet. That was Jeremy Crane talking to community editor Diana Toman there about taking charge of the NHS's official Twitter account for a week. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that, ordinarily, you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. We're going to discuss something a bit different today. You'll find out what it is in a moment. And joining me today is lawyer Denise Lester and Tony Honigberg and Phil Dave. And the subject is actually based on a blog on the Jewish News website, The article is simply entitled, Rethink the Ink, Defying the Jewish Tattoo Taboo. We thought we'd discuss what being Jewish and having a tattoo actually means in 2017. Denise, let's start with you. You were told when growing up, no doubt, not to have a tattoo for religious reasons. Did you listen to the advice? Yes, and actually I'm quite conservative. I I actually have a really uncomfortable feeling about tattoos so I don't like them and also well I don't mind them if they're on people but from an orthodox perspective and a modern orthodox perspective I actually lean to the right on this and I do feel it is defacing one's body and I'm with the orthodox on this. Let me just ask you something do do you wear earrings? I do wear earrings and 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 they're pierced earrings and that's and that's different because that isn't forbidden. Interestingly enough. <laughs> well, did the, did people have earrings in those days? when the, They what? did indeed. And there's a reference in the Bible and commentaries to women wearing earrings, indeed nose rings as well. Jewellery was quite modern when, in those when days. When you look at depictions of ancient Egyptians, didn't they have body art? Well, right, they even. may have body yes, art. Yes, actually, they, they did, didn't they? Did, they? Didn't they? Yes, yes, absolutely. I had to stop and think of that. But what we're referring to, obviously, is sort of our heritage. So ancient Egyptians mm. is, is not our heritage. No. But, but we, as Jews, we've wandered and we've picked up things from different cultures as we've come through to life today. So then it's quite strange that considering the number of people who do have tattoos in this day and age, that still, technically speaking, tattoos are seen as a mutilation and therefore potentially forbidden if you're religious. Well, I've been told about an American rabbi, Rabbi Marshall Claven of Congregation B'nai Israel in Texas. And he got his first tattoo when he was age 16. And he now boasts four pieces, all with a heavy Jewish influence, he says, and he selected tattooing in Jewish history as the subject of his rabbinical thesis. And he explained the intrinsic pull that he'd felt towards a religiously inspired tattoo. Is he an Orthodox rabbi? Does Apparently. Say, really? I I am, I, I'm not absolutely no, sure. No, no, no. I'm, no. I'm surprised. <laughs> no, I can't believe he's that Orthodox. Well, I do, know, I do know someone whom I have acted with who did Samicha and was a rabbi. He now is no longer a rabbi and... I've I've seen him in wardrobe when we get changed, and have you now? I Where have. is this tattoo? Excuse <laughs> me. He has tattoos everywhere. Good His gracious. body is covered in tattoos. Well, that's the thing. From friends who I know who are tattooed, there is an addiction that comes on. It's the pain. It's I mean I don't know if anybody's watched the Tattoo Removers program. Oh, Tattoo Fixers grim, or whatever. Yeah, Tattoo Fixers. It. Oh, it's no. a grim, oh. grim, you know, grim fascination. But friends of mine have said that you actually get, you know, addicted. You want the next one. And also there is an element of body painting, body sculpting. I mean, 
the reality is one can go off to somewhere like southern Spain and have a henna tattoo put you know put on a you know temporary yeah, that's tattoo not that's it? not permanent and that you know is the way around it or whatever but the, the fashion is amongst young people is to have tattoos and Somebody like the late, great Amy Winehouse, who was so obviously Jewish and wore a Mogham David. She was heavily tattooed from head to toe. And it suited her. But it's really fascinating that you say that it's for younger people because I can't help but think, I don't understand why people who are maybe young when they have the tattoos don't think, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen as I get older and perhaps skin potentially isn't as taut as it once was and this tattoo isn't going well, to look the same Well, do you know something? I don't think they think about it at all. I but that's a lot of people who don't think like they that. They don't think I like that. I personally think tattoos are ho- I agree with you. I, I think tattoos are horrible and make me feel sick. But oh, I wow. Think <laughs> I think it's... Yeah, sorry to anyone who has a tattoo. <laughs> I think it's absolutely ridiculous that if a, a Jewish person dies and has tattoos he's not allowed he or she is not allowed to be buried I, I do think that's in, a, in the main part of the, the cemetery I, I assume they have a side of part of the cemetery where well that's where awful I mean that, that, that is awful because at the end of the day they're still Jewish it would depends on which part of the community and which kahila your you know subdivision you're. You we are. make we make. So that's dis- not an absolute. No, because we make decisions. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean you, everybody around mm. the table, but mm. I mean the the Jewish community, the rabbonim and whatever, tend to make decisions and say things are okay. Sometimes, I, I know with people who commit suicide, they're not buried in the main part or, or supposedly not mm. but then they have made they, they've made a decision that perhaps he, they were mentally unstable at that particular yeah, time and so they can bury them in the main part yeah, of the hang on a second there's one heck of a difference between someone who's suffering with mental illness and someone who for vanity decides to plonk a tattoo maybe they're suffering arm. with mental illness i don't know well you, no, uh, I, I had an uncle my my mother's brother who emigrated to Canada and I only met him a couple of times and he had tattoos done when he was in the army. Absolutely and And I was going to say and I have a a few friends of mine who are ex-military and they have tattoos and it's a a badge of honour and Mm. to those of them who may be listening it looks great on them it looks great on them and I've got a friend of mine who's a personal trainer who's adorned with tattoos so does it look good? It looks, yeah, it looks great. I mean, it looks great. It, for me, it's the personal thing. It's, a, it, it's something intrinsic to me. But one also must not forget those people who were caught up in the Holocaust and who were victims who had numbers, numbers engraved. And religious prohibition does not extend to them because it wasn't done by, by them themselves. and yeah. of their own free will. Well, so they, there's well, no... There's, I've, I've got another quotation talking, for you, wasn't wasn't because... Harley Benjaminson from Chabad shed some light, and she says, the Torah forbids us from tattooing our bodies. Nonetheless, one who has had tattoos can still be buried in a Jewish cemetery, mm. and particularly if it's been done by force. Yes. Uh, 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 and it's, it's not... There are very few Jewish burial societies who look carefully at a body and say, oh, we're not going to no, bury it. No, that's right. Just, My daughter has... <clears throat> at least two tattoos that I know of that, that are visible. I don't like them. 
I, I think they're horrible. I think it, it look, doesn't look nice because maybe because it's my daughter. But I don't. I don't like seeing anybody with tattoos. Whenever I've asked some people, I worked with a cameraman who was heavily tattooed, and when I asked him why do you do it, he said because I had the space to do it. Yeah, but that was their reason. There was no other reason. Well, no, I get it because you're treating one's treating one's One's body as 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 a canvas. And actually, going back to Clive, the rabbi, who perhaps was having Jewish symbol symbols, it's like almost sort of quasi manifesting. I don't know the chakras or the Kabbalah or some textures on you so you are that canvas so so it's almost boasting the scriptures isn't it in a sort of inverse or exponential way one could argue that there's an enhanced spirituality by actually putting on your body these whatever symbolism there is which may enhance its mysticism i don't know but one could also argue but one one could also argue though that it's potentially disrespectful if you know that something is against that religion and then you deliberately do something associated with that religion in a parody that's against it Mm. then you could argue that's quite disrespectful surely the important thing is not to actually have a tattoo of something that is human that is a face or an a leg or an arm because that's against jewish law but if you just have a, a flower David or, or something or Mm. But what I'm saying is that if you were to have a Mark and David tattooed, I'm in a bit of a strange dilemma with this, so I'll get on to why in a minute. But mm. if you were to have a Mark and David tattooed on you, what I'm mm. saying is that based on that that decision to have that Mark and David is because of your Judaism, but yet it is your Judaism that forbids so, you to have that tattoo. tattoo. Well, I have- it's almost disrespectful pa- and, and paradoxical it's, yes. par- it's paradoxical mm. i have a friend of mine in fact who has a lion his hebrew name yahuda and a lion on his foot he's half israeli and he's Which very half? proud of that <laughs> the other <foot laughs> and, oh, okay. and i would say he's you know been brought up from an orthodox perspective but i th- i said it's on his well it's on his ankle and i said to him you know it's gosh that must have been really really painful And it was, but it's like a badge of honour. But the reason why I'm caught up in this in a strange way, because to me, I'm a huge believer in individuality. And I think that if someone Mm. wants to do something for themselves, I don't have to like it. Other people don't have to like it, but it is their choice. Technically, their body, almost theirs to do what they will with. But then at the same time, I'm so proud and such a loyal follower in the reform sense of my religion, that I wouldn't necessarily do anything deliberately to go against mm. the religion. So I really am pulled between sort of two arguments here but and I can see both sides. Let's think about it seriously. Someone who's just died, the body has to be buried within 24 hours mm. and that's taken mm. to, the, to the cemetery and the body is washed in the cemetery mm. just before the funeral. So therefore, if they discover... A tattoo. It's too late to do anything about it, isn't it? You know, I, I don't think it would come into being the burial situation. No. To be no. honest, I don't and think I it would get to burial. the mitzvah must be to bury the mitzvah and, and, and to honour and honour. And you've got to watch. You've got to vach and then yeah. bury, and you make sure that your soul goes to you know that place, w- which as soon is as which is almost the way round getting yeah. having the body buried regularly the the same goes as i understand i was talking to a rabbi about people that don't get circumcised because their parents don't want them circumcised or whatever 
they said we well you wouldn't ask if they they'd been circumcised so you'd bar mitzvah them and you wouldn't ask had they been circumcised so you'd bury them as a Jew the other thing is I, I happen to know a very creative lovely woman who's Jewish who was a tattoo was a tattooist so you know our community spans everything of course <laughs> we do we, we are like everybody else well, let me tell you again this is this is again very interesting from the piece of paper i've got which is all about this it says this practice by certain burial societies led to the more common misconception that this ban was an inherent part of jewish law it is not well how do they where have they got that from do they say why it's not or how they know it's not, because I can't understand why so mm. many people around the world, so many Jews around the world, obviously, would be under the impression that tattoos are against the rules. So We've all sort of been brought, brought up, up believing well, it's this. In, it's in Leviticus. There is a it's prohibition. It's about defacing the body. Etching, etching a tattoo on oneself. And it's it's One, linked you, to the idolatry concept um, What are the as actual well. words, I wonder? And, and, Pro- and that, can that be twisted around to... I think there's more than one reference. There's more than one reference, halachic reference, but etching the tattoo, and it is in Leviticus, and so it's in the on the list of thou shalt and thou you know thou shalt not do X, Y, and Z. I mean the the thing is though we live in a contemporary society, and because somebody has done that doesn't mean to say that Hashem is not going to be compassionate and who am I to judge and there's also the concept of one can engage in into stuva repentance by arguably removing the tattoos. Well so, I, I, can, yeah. I can again quote Rabbi Klavim I mentioned earlier he says in the classic rabbinic period what bothered the rabbis was not the presence or the content of that mark but its intended purpose while a minority of sages believe that willfully receiving or giving a tattoo was a transgression, the majority objected only when the tattoo served an idolatrous purpose. Mm. Mm. And you may have it in that terms of understand. an ownership as well, because you could conceivably have somebody having a mark, such as a tribal mark, gangs, yeah. but also perhaps in historic times, maybe somebody would have a tattoo to show that they belonged to, they were a slave to someone, for example, and also... you know, and then you they look, would have had a tattoo against their will. Yeah, and you also look at, you also look at the Eastern philosophy where you will have... It, like akin to Shaolin warriors who would have t- tattoos or markings. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a complex subject as well. I have to say that to anyone who has tattoos, I don't even know how they can begin to put themselves through this. I think it's bad enough when one has to go against one's will to have inoculations and stuff like that <laughs> at a doctor. But to categorically go into a purpose-built shop where their pretty much sole purpose is to treat your body like a pincushion, mm. whether that be through piercings or tattoos. Why would you do that? Why would you even want a needle jabbed in and out of you constantly? It's, Ugh, it's, it's not it's me at all. Business. I don't like it. It's big business. It's big business. It really is. It's big business. And, and more and more Jewish people have, are being mm. tattooed. There we are. My thanks to our guest, Lawyer Denise Lester. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London, Masorti Synagogue. 
A bank holiday leading into the last week of the school holidays may make us feel that it's still summer and holiday time, but we've also begun the month of Elul, the month of preparation before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, ideally as starting to think seriously about certain things. And even for those for whom the religious significance is the priority, many other factors form part of these weeks. My family has experienced both birth and death in this past year, and I know we are far from unique. It's complex, and life is complicated. The Jewish summer is characterized by the three weeks leading up to Tisha B'Av, when our mood becomes increasingly gloomy, and we read Haftarot of rebuke, and then following Tisha B'Av, seven weeks when we hear Haftarot of comfort. As someone recently bereaved, I was at first thinking that perhaps it is good and encouraging to have far more weeks of comfort than of rebuke, and I helped to approach the new year in a spirit of optimism. I then came across a particular reading by Rabbi Alan Lucas, which really helped me, and I hope will speak to others. Probably had I read it last year or the year before, it would not have resonated in the same way. It's interesting to note, he writes, that it takes three special Shabbatot to prepare for Tisha B'Av, but seven to recover from it. This simply reflects the nature of loss and recovery. Bonds that bind us to those we loved can be severed in the blink of an eye, but recovery takes time and patience. That this is true on the national level, no less so than it is on the level of the individual, is one of the enduring lessons of Jewish history. Sometimes it seems that there is far more focus on the social aspects of our festivals than the spiritual, and while some families are fortunate in being together, for very many reasons this is not true for everyone, and some find this a very difficult season. World events are worrying. Many are experiencing personal worries of different sorts, which will cast a shadow over the coming weeks. But life is a mixture of things, and somehow it is all contained within Jewish tradition, within the Jewish year, if we allow it to be. May we all find comfort and be strengthened over the coming weeks. So true what Rabbi Golby says, isn't it? It's always around this time that one really analyses what you've done in the last year, and maybe those you've lost, and maybe, please God, even those that you've gained. And It's really poignant, I think, for so many Jews around this time. I know, obviously, the same could be said for every New Year, whether it be the mainstream New Year or the Jewish New Year, but all the same. Thank you very much to Rabbi Amanda Golby from New North London Mazorti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks very much to our guest, Victor Sorensen, telling us about life for Jews of Barcelona following the terrorist attacks. Karen Millie-James, remember her new book, Where in the Dark? To Jeremy Crane, who spoke to us about taking charge of the official NHS Twitter account. Thanks to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team including our producers Tony Honigberg and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen again to any of our previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.